Hi guys and welcome to this episode of How to Wow starring The Who's Roger Daltrey. Yes, that's actual Roger Daltrey and this super special episode is brought to you in association with our friends at Athletic Greens. Every morning, Tash, my wife and I go scoop da loop with one heap scoopful of this all-round nutritional insurance which is made up of no less than 75 vitamins, minerals and whole food sourced ingredients including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, green superfood scientifically researched and blended together to support and improve energy, recovery, immunity and digestion. Deep seaweed green like nature itself. This eye candy concoction takes just a few seconds like no more than five or six. Okay, ten tops. To prepare and taste absolutely gorgeous. And so here's how you can get yours. Simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow and join health experts, athletes and health conscious go-getters around the world who make a daily commitment to their health every day. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash how to wow. Okay, and don't forget slash how to wow because this will entitle you to the special deal Athletic Greens have given how to wow listeners. A free year's supply of vitamin D and five travel free packs today to take with you on the go. Once again, athleticgreens.com slash don't forget how to wow. Okay, and now to the conversation. All right, Roger, so where are we? I mean, obviously not the address, but whereabouts are we? We're, we're in the, the area that I grew up from the age of 11, which is in Chiswick. Yep. And uh, that, that uh, brings back fond memories every, every time I come here. But this, uh, this in those days was all bedsits, and now, of course, it's all Oipaloi and <laughs> <laughs> posh. <laughs> and you are, you are now part of the Oipaloi, mortgage-free, I'm guessing. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> well, at least till the end of this year. Yeah, one never knows. One, ne- Yeah, strange times, right. The most important thing, first of all, uh, the Teenage Cancer Trust gigs this year that have been postponed, what's going to happen instead, please? Well, well we uh, of course, we, we are very short on our fundraising because all, all of our fundraising was events-based and um, we, we lost the Albert Hall week that we had planned, which is, usually brings in anywhere between one and two million pounds to, to the charity. Uh, and the London Marathon, of course, your car fest, I was going to do those, really looking forward to those. Um, so we are probably between five and seven million pounds short on, on our fundraising ability because of events being cancelled. And uh, so we're trying to find other ways around it. So. What we've done, and my, my partners helped me with, with the shows at the Albert Hall, uh, Des Murphy and, and Chris York, um, we've, we've collected all this wonderful footage of the shows over the last 15 years. And I mean, we've had incredible artists. And uh, it's really well shot. They're very special shows. There's something about the Albert Hall and the way we've learnt to do it because we've been doing it for so long. We get a great sound, so the sound's great, the visuals are great, and the atmosphere of the videos is great. So we we managed to get all the artists to agree to give us a lump of the footage of that show. They're not full shows by any means. Hopefully we get a second bite of the cherry and have a bit more of the show later on in the year if we can raise some money out of this. And we put them together, they're going to be shown on YouTube. Uh, so the potential viewership of this is absolutely huge. But there's one downside, and, and I've got to say, it, it's not it's not a big downside. It's just for the public and the viewers of, of YouTube to understand now that you're used to getting your stuff for free. 
and it's a great service, YouTube. I'm not, I'm not criticising it at all, but this is the only way charities like us, and there'll be others, there'll be Marie Curie, there'll be Macmillan Nursing, they'll possibly all try and do things online where it's click to donate. All we're asking for is if you watch these videos, please try and feel involved with the charity, what our purpose is, so that we can be there at the end of this, whatever's going on at the moment, uh, and not disappear, because this is in the national health. It's incredibly important for teenagers and, and young adults. Um, and all we're asking for is for you to just donate the price of a cup of coffee, three to five quid. If everybody did that, we'd be, we'd be home dry for the next two, three, four years. And that would really, really help out an awful lot. This is me popping in with the official housekeeping. Teenage Cancer Trust relies on donations and is set to lose more than £6 million in funding this year due to coronavirus pandemic this year. And so in 2020, they're raising money by launching an archive of never-before-seen footage of live performances at the Royal Albert Hall starting on Thursday the 8th of October at 8pm with Ed Sheeran's 2017 performance at youtube.com slash tctunseen. Also being broadcast on Friday the 9th of October, Muse, Saturday the 10th, Rudimental, Sunday the 11th, Paul McCartney, Monday the 12th, Paul Weller, Tuesday the 13th, Stereophonics, Wednesday the 14th, Pulp, Thursday the 15th, Noel Gallagher, Friday the 16th, Them Crooked Vultures, Saturday the 17th, The Who Themselves, Sunday the 18th, The Cure, and Saturday the 31st of October, it concludes with The Cure full live stream. And now back to Roger and I in his living room. And yeah, uh, so don't be tight, horses. <laughs> That's your Bob Geldof moment. Give us your fucking money. Oh, no, no, I would go that far. I mean, because I know it. I know. I mean, we do under. I do understand. You know how everybody's kind of worried about their future, their jobs, everything else, and it's not easy. But surely, the, the price of a cup of coffee. Almost everybody can afford it. Or, or whatever. I mean, because you said before, you know, if 100 million people watch these gigs worldwide, and why wouldn't they? If you th look at the talent that's, that's, uh, that's in the lineup, in the virtual lineup, you know, if you get 100 million views and they give you a dollar each or a pound each, this could be the biggest fundraising event Teenage Cancer Trust and Teenage Cancer America has accidentally ever come across. Yeah, could, could work out. And we've got Teen Cancer Brazil, remember, uh, which is in Sao Paulo. So, I mean, that's just starting, but. You know, we've led. We should be so proud that <laughs> that's my brick. <laughs> <laughs> you did uh, say brick, didn't you? Yeah, it's a brick. <laughs> yeah, this is my. This is my very up to date. I love modern. it. I, I I refuse to have an iPhone. I hate them because I I hate walking around with my head down. I, if you, if I've got this, I never look at it. So, but it clicks every now. I like that. <laughs> it's not called a burner. Is that a burner? No, it's not a burner. It's a brick. Right, okay. Well, very. <laughs> I don't have a phone at all. But, uh, yeah, no, but, I mean, we should be so proud of this in this country, and music business especially, and the comedy people that have helped us. We've led the world in recognising this issue that, that, that adolescents and young adults get in the old system where they were isolated when they got cancer. It was really... Everybody, everybody now talks about mental health. We were on that page 30 years ago. So I, I'm really proud that we've recognised the issue and got got behind it. Well, you should you should be, and I'm so pleased uh, that you're you're involved. Your energy's been amazing. It's been relentless. It's sincere. It comes from a, an authentic place. Um, but what about the fact that all the record companies have waived all fees, all publishing, NPR, McCartney promotions? You know, 
it's been a pretty supreme effort. It's, com- it? it's completely everybody in the music business and the comedy industries are completely unconditional. They want to help, and they they know that they know this is too important to lose, and anything they can do to help, they're doing. This is awesome. It's, it's fabulous to get it, to see it all come together. You know, it's great. And so, so you and Teenage Cancer Trust. When did your paths first cross? Uh, well, when it started, because it, it started by my my GP and it, a guy called Doctor Adrian Whiteson and his wife Myrna, and he just told me this idea that they had. I'm going to start this charity because because they'd noticed young sixteen year olds sometimes in bed after losing a leg or or, or, or or with a brain tumor or whatever waking up with a two-year-old next to them they just noticed that all of a sudden a time of their lives where they they're it's the formation of then their future these teenagers were clamming up shutting up becoming isolated insular uh basically mentally unstable and they thought, we'd, we've got to change this. We've, we, you know, if every hospital, children's hospital deserves a nursery where the kids can go and play with dollies and teddy bears, you know, we're all there. Um, what is there for, for adolescents and young adults? And, and they're at, when, when they thought about it, there was nothing. There still isn't anything apart from the Teenage Cancer Trust. We are the only age-appropriate thing in the whole NHS. Um, hopefully that will get better. It's been my dream that the Teenage Cancer Trust will be the beginning of the first wings or even hospitals that are just for adolescents and young adults with any hospitalised illness. Because it's crazy that that everyone feels sorry for an eight-year-old kid who's got cancer and they're throwing money at that because they carry what I call the, the Bambi effect. But that kid... Five years later, when he's 13, you know, people don't look at them the same. I don't yeah, yeah, know what yeah. something happened. And, but, the, but that youngster at, at 13 suffers far more, more than the eight-year-old because the eight-year-old doesn't knows they're not well. They don't, I'm not saying they have a good time. No, it is terrible. But the 13-year-old knows exactly what they've got. They know exactly what they're going to go through. Yeah. And they know their outcomes. It's... So it's a totally different mindset. Uh, so anyway, you know, it's, it, to me, it's a three-way win. It's a win for the children because they don't have to be around teenagers. They don't want to be around teenagers. Teenagers don't want to be around children. <laughs> uh, and the same with adults. Adult, you know, old people like me, we don't want to don't want to be around teenagers <laughs> if we're ill in hospital. And the teenagers certainly don't want to be around old farts like me. So. It's a three-way win. Yeah, yeah. And it's just it's just cooperation, organisation, and making the and just jigging things around, and maybe building a little bit more of the hospital. I mean, it's, when when it's pointed out to you, as you pointed out to me on several occasions, and your doctor pointed it out to you, it's so obvious, isn't it? <laughs> it's so obvious. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, 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 before eighteen oh two, there was no such thing as a children's hospital. But then somebody noticed maybe we shouldn't put two five year olds in with these old men, older women. You know, what we need to do is start a children's hospital. Yeah. Well, we're we're now at that point. You, you could have made the excuse to pr- pr- post war. 
was a long time ago now, most of my life. Uh, there weren't teenagers. You kind of, you were a child and you went straight out to work and you were expected to be an adult overnight. But since the 50s, since Elvis, since the birth of the music industry and the whole sections of the economy focused on that age group for their profit, you can't deny that, that they're incredibly psych psychologically and socially different. And... It, and they need to have their own space. There's no doubt about it. It's not not an if or a but. It's, you've got to do it. You've just got to do it. I got to tell people listening. Rogers, hold it. We're holding our microphones um, in our hands, uh, as opposed to having them in stands. We have stands, but we're we're each holding a microphone. And you've now held it like you hold a microphone on stage. You've done that thing. Well, I'm getting cable. ready to loop it. <laughs> <laughs> He's just done it. So quick, you can't help yourself. Can we you? nearly went out the window. Blimey, O'Reilly. Fun. Can we talk about? Can we talk about life? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's stick with the teenage theme, shall we? Um, my goodness me, you have educated me in so many things since I've been lucky enough to know you, and I'm grateful to know you. Um, the latest lesson has been, <laughs> again, it's so obvious when you say it out loud, the difference uh, between pop. Rock and roll and rock. So the Beatles were the kings of pop. The Running Stones were the kings of rock and roll. And the Who, yourself, Faces, Jeff Beck Group were rock. The difference being? No, I, I wouldn't say the face. I think Faces were definitely rock and roll. Like, it's, it, it's, See, here we go. As, well, it's music to make love to, you know, dance to. and that. But the Who was music to fight to. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, I mean, because the, the beat is so different. It's always, it's, it's, the, it's, it's on the one. <laughs> it's on the one. What does that mean, Roger? It's on the one, man. <laughs> yeah, it's on the one. But, but yeah, that's, I've always thought that, you know, if you want to kill a party, stone dead, put the bloody Who song on. <laughs> <laughs> or if you want people to go home. <laughs> exactly. I'm giving you a clue here, you know. You want, you want to empty the house. <laughs> but, you know, I didn't realise that. So... Having talked to you now and lots of other people um, who do what you do for a living and have been doing it for so long at the top of their game, it's become evident that everybody got the fact the Beatles were leading a revolution out of the US, that Chuck Berry, Little Richard, um, you know. Um, but all the musos, they wanted to be in the Stones. They saw the Stones for the first time. They love the Beatles. They get the Beatles, but they go, no, no, the Rolling Stones. That That's that's sort of what we aspire to. And was it was similar for you, wasn't it? Yeah, we had the same thing. Once we once we discovered uh, the blues, um, Motown, the blues, you know, those early artists, Little Richard and that, the, the black community, with their roots in gospel, they were doing it in a way that was so much better than the Bobbies. You know, that, that, that dreadful period of the Bobbies. <laughs> Bobby V. <laughs> there were so many Bobbies. But not the Everleys. <laughs> no, the Everleys were cool. Oh, here no, we go. The Ever Ever no, the Everleys were always cool. <laughs> Pointing at but me. That, but that's, that blood harmonies, you can't whack them, can you? No, no, and no. And they really came, they, you know, they, they, they were down-home Kentucky boys, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant. Um, no, the Everleys and Buddy Holly, of course, I would count as doing it in a different way. It came from a different part of his spirit and his, his body. Yeah, Woody Guthrie as well? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that a, a totally different music. Yeah, but it came from the gut. Yeah, um, and of course, once we saw the Chicago blues players, you know, like Little Walter, you know, Jimmy Reed, John Lee Hooker, 
Sonny Boy, Sonny Boy Williamson. Oh, God, what character he was. Uh, Howling Wolf. Wow. He'd blow you, blow you away when you saw it. It, he was, it was just so rooted in, I, I suppose, what, I, I've always often wondered why this British white working class kids, when we're all about 16, 17, 18 years old, worship these guys. And I suddenly realised we were probably nearer to what these guys had suffered in their communities because white working class, you know, it was the bottom rung of a then, which was the class system. And it was totally different than it is today. Although today the white working class is still bottom rung uh, under the heel of sort of everything else on top. Um, and I oft, often wonder if, if there wasn't a psycho, kind of psychological connection going on there um, because we just worship them. And those guys just come over here and in, in America, of course, they could only, couldn't play anywhere out of, the, out of their own clubs and little places. They came over here and were treated like royalty. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't believe their luck. It was, and we worshipped them. And they were, they were, so, they were so, and to see them, to have Sonny Boy Williamson stand in front of you at the marquee with his, with his bowler hat and his little briefcases, his little, little tiny briefcase. Of, of which he used to carry his harmonicas and, and a bottle of whiskey. Johnny Walker, square bottle of whiskey. And, then he, and he'd, can I, can I come up and do a number with you? And you're looking down there, Sonny Boy Williams, you, can you come up and do a number yeah, all with right, us? <laughs> Are you kidding? Uh, uh, wonderful. And he, he, he you know, he, I just learned so much from them. And there were other guys, you know, Black English people from the Caribbean. There was Jimmy James and the Vagabonds. They were all fantastic showmen. They had just, oh, they just glowed. They just. But they were in the groove, weren't they? They yeah, were. They they were yeah. in it. They lived it. They lived they it. They meant it. They were something part of about it. where. They, and I think it all came from their roots in the church. You know, the, 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 from their gospel roots. They yeah, yeah. All. all it, well, I started in the church. I was in the church choir in Shepherd's Bush, just down the road there. And uh, so singing very different music. Yeah. It was High Church of England, but <laughs> it wasn't quite hallelujah. <laughs> but uh, I'd like to go back and put a few hallelujahs in now. But you do talk about that, and you've talked about it before, about, about you know, mental health and about singing and about meeting people, you know, from when you were, you know, 10, 11 in church right to, to today. And, you know, you've always championed it because it makes you feel, you know, it's drug-free, it's high in your own supply, it's dopamine, it's serotonin. And you, you have talked about feeling like that in the choir at church. Yeah, there's just something about singing that brings people together. And, that, and it's scientific fact that if... if when people start singing together, their heartbeats all settle down to the same rhythm. I find that extraordinary. So there's something much more going on with, with singing and, uh, and joining in and than we understand. And the really interesting thing I find is that, as you know, not, not everybody's got perfect pitch, but it doesn't matter. When you hear African tribes singing, they're... they're it's kind of notes within notes within notes. There are no wrong notes, just that some are more right than others. Yeah. But when it's all together, it creates a sound that is, I don't know, it touches so deep inside us. It's weird. Well, if you get enough people together, 
you'll you'll be in harmony with someone. I mean, that's football. You don't get out of tune football crowds, do you? <laughs> well, it depends what football club you're. <laughs> we don't want to start a war. Do no, we? we don't. Come on, you gunners. Um, but because um, you talk about when you start singing together, your heart beats, your hearts all start to beat at the same rate, and also there's a vibration thing. Because the because there's there's vibrations in the airwaves and that so you everything starts to vibrate at the same frequency and it's not only when you're singing together and that's why concerts are so collegiate and so sort of euphoric because it's the it's the it's the vibration the amplification of the of the sound waves from the st- the wall of sound from the the stacks of speakers into the crowd that it's this it's like this mass hypnosis and that's why gigs work and also you know at a sporting it's a sporting event you know there's two teams they're in opposition nobody's really in opposition at a gig you're all together you're all you literally right. as one yeah it's one of the few things that everyone's pulling the same way but i must say i to just to sit in in the stands of a football stadium listening to it doesn't matter what what team you're playing the opposing fans, your fans, the sound of a group of people just singing their heads off. And most of them come out of their completely coarse, don't they? They, they yeah. lose their voices. They sing so loud. It's the most wonderful sound you, you can hear. It really is. Yeah. And it's one of the few places you can really hear it where it's actually not amplified and it is just above all the ruckus and the whatever else is going on. It's, it's just Fabulous noise. Well, there's that famous story, wasn't there, about the architecture of the um, of the um, Queen Elizabeth Stadium for the Olympics, and you know the 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 acoustics were very important because they had to get it. They wanted it to be the loudest Olympics, and so that so they they created the architecture so the 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 noise of the crowd went back right onto the track, and that's one of the reasons Super Saturday was so spectacular because they focused really? on the sound. Yeah, yeah. Wow, didn't big, know that. Big deal. Well, talk about the Hollywood Bowl. Let's talk about that and the Everly Brothers because you get the Hollywood Bowl. You played there how many yeah, times? Well, loads of times. Loads. Of, what, how good is that? How good is it to say that? How many, <laughs> we first, oh, loads, oh, loads well, we of first times. played there in 1967. No, I know. And it was with the Everly Brothers. I know, and you, but you didn't get to meet them. No, and I was so dying to meet them, dying to meet them. But then, sadly, we had a bit, little bit of an event. <laughs> <laughs> one, one was in those days that the, the the orchestra pit in front of the Hollywood Bowl, when there was an audience in there for a rock show, they used to flood it, only about two foot deep in water. Uh, and of course, we used to smash our gear up at the end of the shows in those days. Did you really? Yeah, yeah yes, we were, we were. <laughs> You know, it was all part of the act, and oh my god! I know, and and and, uh, and and along with smashing up the gear, we used to let off these kind of um, army smoke bombs. Yeah, pyrotechnics. <laughs> Let's go with that. Shall they we? weren't, but no, these were serious pyrotechnics. <laughs> they were. That's what you'd hide a fleet of tanks behind. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we, we, as we started smashing up the gear, our road manager Bob Pridden uh, set off this smoke bomb behind. Beats amplifier, which lets out this horrible yellowy green thick smoke. Uh, the drums end up in in the moat, <laughs> and then the next thing we know, it goes We're surrounded by police fire engines, uh, and then we're we're all arrested because. <laughs> And we're going, why? What, what have we done? And of course, we didn't realise what what we we were green as anything. As, uh, 
what what have we done? They said, we thought there was a fire in a canyon. And, of course, if you've got a fire in in one of those canyons in L.A., that's a serious fire. So I understood totally why they freaked. (laughs) They freaked us out because we thought we were going to go to jail for a year. And all that meant you didn't meet the Everly Brothers who were on the same No, no, because of all that, we didn't meet the Everly Brothers. But um, apparently the, the the crowd in the at the bowl at the time thought the show was great, especially the, especially the pyrotechnics. <laughs> Can you imagine that now? And the blue and red lights. Go to go to prison for the rest of your life. <laughs> the the other um, name that keeps coming up um, when I talk to your mob, you know, your your you, you legends from the sixties is Lonnie Donegan. Yeah, Lonnie. And he seems to be. He seems to be the person, him and Long John Baldry in a way, that seemed to everybody sort of worshipped at his altar as well. And I remember a few years back in the 90s, I went to this award show and Van Morrison was there. Now, to get him to, to just come out of the house is impossible. To get him to present an award. And we said, well, what, who, who's won the award? And they said, oh, Lonnie Donegan. And Van came over from Ireland to, to present the award because Lonnie Donegan was that big a deal. Tell us, tell us about Lonnie Donegan. What was it about him? Well, for for me, the journey was, you know, Elvis Presley. Yeah. Uh, and then everybody thought, well, I could look like Elvis Presley. So with the help of a bar of soap, <laughs> you could shake the hair up. You know, everybody was in, in the school bogs with a bar of soap, using it as brew cream to get the hair to go back and get a little quiff at the front. Um of course, nobody looked like Elvis, and he, he was extraordinary. Um, and his, his early records were kind of cool. Heartbreak Hotel, um, Hound Dog, they were, you know, was, they, were, they were raunchy. They were, but then it all went a bit puddingy. But then along came this guy and this, this music called Skiffle. And it was Skiffle that really turned me on because it, it, I could never have afforded to buy a guitar. When I saw Lonnie Donegan playing a guitar and, and when I saw him sing and heard him sing, I suddenly thought, if I can, I, I can do what he does. There was something primal coming out of Lonnie. He would, he would sing the song, start off quite ordinary, but then he'd just throw his head back and it became a primal scream. Wow. And I thought, that's what I want to do. How am I going to get a guitar? <laughs> So, long story short, I made myself a very bad acoustic guitar. And uh, the great thing about Skiffle Group was it was usually one guitar, somebody with a tea chest, a, a broomstick and a piece of string for a bass, an old washboard and a hubcap for a drum kit. Yeah. And off you went. And it worked. And it worked. And so we all, every group, every street around Shepherd's Bush, every Notting Hill, around the west where I live. I didn't go much to the East End in those days. Um, every street had at least one skiffle group. And when you say every street, does that mean they were playing on the street? On the street playing, playing on the street, yeah. What, what, just just trying? Just, yeah, yeah, just kids playing, playing in the street. Wow, and so, yeah. that must have been so it, amazing. It was. Well, you've got to remember there were no cars on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, if a car came along, it looked like a spaceship coming by. Really? <laughs> But you know, was it a weekend thing or? Saturday well, afternoon? no, most most nights, in, especially in the summer. Really. Um, no microphones. No, it was all all just acoustic and very quiet. But it was just the fact that it taught us to, it it kept us out of trouble. Yeah. Kept me out of trouble for that's for certain. Um, 
and I ended up in a band with with, with some quite rough people. And my bass bass player was, you know, I used to be terrified of him at school. He, he ended up as my bass player, and lovely bloke. Um, <laughs> no, no, he was it's just the, the, the music kind of straightened us all out. Right. You know? It's funny how your imag- imaginations when you when you're young and little like I am. Yeah. Uh, like I was, I was you know, very small, very small small boat. You, these big boats kind of frighten the life out of you. Uh, but but he ended up as my one of, you know really good mate and and our, and our bass player, uh, a mate had a mate from another street which was kind of sacrilege in a way, because <laughs> he you could never you can't have someone from another street in your group. <laughs> like my my old mate Harry, he's still still around. Um, he he was he was our um, washboard player and ended up being the first drummer in the Who. Unbelievable. So, well, not they weren't the Who though, were they then? No, in, we weren't who we were the detours, detours wasn't it? Yeah, but, so, we did have a name before that, but I can't remember what it was. You've, you've, it, it probably was the extremely worried men <laughs> for, with the with, with the, <laughs> with the paces from the street next door. But you've told me the story about um, making your first guitar before, but you made your first three though, didn't you? Uh, yeah, the, the the first the first acoustic lasted about six weeks. Right, it would have made a, a much better cheese cutter. Um, but uh, it folded, folded up in six weeks. But but then my uncle, who was a carpenter, um, he 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 helped me make the second one, and he, and I got the neck to the body right, and it actually stayed together. Right. And that and I had that for about a year. Then I, and that then I, that for not so I'd gone from thirty from twelve, and I just turned fifteen when I got a job in a metalwork factory and. Because they had saws and they had all kinds of stuff, I thought, ooh, <laughs> <laughs> I could I could make a serious electric guitar now. <laughs> and and so, but the, the difficulty was hiding hiding the wood shavings in a metalwork factory. <laughs> but you were earning money. Were they that out of your reach to buy a second-hand guitar? Then they were. They, yeah, well, a, a, an electric guitar in those uh, those days was. I, I can't remember, but it always, it always felt out of our reach. Right, and I, it was more fun to make them anyway. Yeah, um, and I had a mate who worked at a, a guitar factory in Acton Lane, <laughs> who, who kind of somehow or the other could, could slip little bits out that we needed. <laughs> See, it's a story. I won't, be, I, won't be, I won't mention his name, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but that's how you get. By. I mean, everybody, you know, you have, we have to be honest when when you live on. On, on the bottom rung of the ladder, which we were in those days, um, you can't get by without the Dill Boys. It's the Dill Boys that make life bearable. Yeah, you have to accept that and get over it. You know. So, which was the first guitar you did buy? What was it? What did you have did your you, eye the on? The first guitar my dad got a mortgage on. <laughs> almost, almost had to mortgage the house. He bought me an Epiphone, um, and I had that. I played that in in. What was then the detours, uh, and then I gave it to Pete because uh, we we had trouble getting decent singers, and uh, somehow or the other I ended up being the singer, uh, not the guitarist. A sheet metal work and guitar playing don't go together. My hands were always cut to shreds, so you know there's plenty of bum notes because ouch, right. <laughs> the strings got down I didn't the cut. Know that about your dad buying you the first proper guitar. Huh? Yeah, he bought that, and then then I 
Then I gave it to Pete, and the, uh, Pete used it for a while. Um, can't remember what happened after that because everything started to move so quickly. Once we became the Who, um, and we started playing the blues because everybody started playing the blues then. Um, the audience grew very, very quickly. We then became the high numbers and got attached to the mob movement through a guy called Peter Meaden, who became our manager at the time. Uh, and every, like that whole period now just seems like a whirlwind, a dream. Like it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's getting foggy now, I've got to say that. The, the memories are getting foggy because the years get foggy. It's really weird. Um, it, what in those days used to seem like ages and ages and ages. I look back and it was like six months. Yeah. It's really weird. <laughs> well, there's a theory about that, isn't there? So the theory about that is the reason years pass quicker as you get older because they're a smaller fraction of your life. You know, one year when you're 16... Well, don't talk about that. No, I know, I know. <laughs> but, can, we, can we leave that one out? <laughs> but it's true, isn't it? So, like, that's why your childhood seems to last forever because every year, you know, your fifth year is 20% of your life that, up I to know. that point. I know, I know. Anyway, no, we'll move on. Well, actually, no, let's talk to, Let's talk about Betty, Pete's mum. What was most important? Um, your mate nicking the guitar... Not nicking. Yeah, your mate nicking the guitar parts from the Guitar Factory or, or Pete's mum, Betty, being so fucking fantastic, it seemed. Pete's mum, Betty Townsend, was, she, she was magical. Uh, she, was at, she, she was the one... She had faith in us. Um, she obviously... I don't know what it was. She saw John was quite clearly immediately. You saw John play the bass. Um, he quite clearly had he was he had enormous ability. You know, he was quite clearly a, a great musician. As was Pete on the guitar, um, uh, and she just believed in the band. Once we got Keith in the band, or even before Keith, when we were the when we were the, were the detours, where she really helped out, she got us a, she used to get us gigs. She got us an agent. Um, she just believed in us. She had faith in us. Um, she'd drive us to gigs <laughs> in a little Ford van. And I remember in 1963 we had that terrible winter when, when the road, the roads were like the crest of run. I mean, it really was. We had, we had to do a gig down in Margate. I think it was Margate or Ramsgate, one of those two. And she drove us there in this little little Ford, tiny little van, you know, a little 500-weight van or whatever they were in those days. And we managed to get our gear in. Uh, three of us had to... <laughs> only one could sit in the front with Betty and three, the other three had to lay on top of the, the equipment in the back all the way down. And each side of the road, you couldn't see anything other than a wall of ice. It, it really was like the crest of rum. But Betty, fearless Betty, got us down. We did that gig and we got back. She just believed that we would do it. And why was she so into it? Was she into music herself? Or? She was a singer, you know. She was, she was, uh, Pete's dad was a saxophonist in the Squadroneers, which was a, an RAF band that later became big on the dance circuit. And she was one of the singers. Um, and she's a real good, good egg. She really was a good egg. Fantastic, because she had real drive. Because Pete, Pete, Pete was had has passion, had passion, but he wasn't the most energetic human being in the world, was he? Well, Pete was an art student. <laughs> it says to do that to them, didn't it? 
no, he wasn't. No, um, they, uh, but equally, for people like me, um, at nineteen, I, you know, I was I was married and I had a, a young baby. Um, I, I I had to give it my best shot. There were two ways out. I could either follow my mates and they were all trying to get me to come bank robbing. <laughs> oh, this is really good, Roger. You can make loads of. I didn't want to do anything to do with that. Um, but they were, you know, they all said it, how great it was until later on when they had to pay the debt. Yeah. <laughs> and they all ended up in Nick for a long time, you know. Um, fortunately, I had the music and I just, I, I knew I was getting a good reaction from an audience uh, as a singer. You know, you know when you can do it and when you, or when you can't do it. I'm not blowing a trumpet, but you can either cut it or you can't. And I was getting good reaction. You always know when you get like four, four or five groups of girls dancing in front of you, <laughs> which used to happen all every night. You know, so you know that there's something going on that you've got a chance. Now to make that chance happen, you just have to go for it hundred hundred percent, and. Uh, that's what I did. I, I, I couldn't do the marriage. I tried. I did try. I was f six stories up in a council, a block of council flats in, in South Fields. Uh, one room of it um, with the mother-in-law and, and my wife and baby. I really loved my, my first wife. And, of course, my son is great. Um, but I couldn't do it. I was 19 and I used to look out the window of this council flat and there parked in the van, in the street opposite was the group van with the detours written along the side with it, with an arrow at the front pointing and I, and it was almost like a magnet yeah i've got to, i've got to give this up and so i i moved out i dusted around for a while then then we bought a bigger van and i moved into the van i put a mattress above the above the cab we had a luton van it was like an old removal van and lived in that for for nine months. Well, that and the office couch when it got cold. And when, um, when, how soon after that was it you found yourself on a plane with Marianne Faithful going up to Manchester for Top of the Pops? Uh, well, that's what I mean. It, it seemed like forever on, in that. That was all 1964 in that van. And then, yeah, the following, I think it was anyway, anyhow, anywhere. Um, you have to look up when that was released in 65 probably would have been about May um, I, I take my first flight on a, on a Viscount from Heathrow and I end up sitting next to Marianne Faithful and she could see that I was a bit fidgety and nervous did she know who you she, were? Uh, yeah oh yeah we kind of it was a kind of weird scene in those days We everybody kind of knew everybody it was a London was a very small village of musicians. Um, it, it was bumping into each other all the time, so it was good. And the the whole exportability of the of the, the bands at the time to America, because America loved British bands at that time. Or did they did they love all British bands or specific British bands? Well, they seemed to. I mean, it was everybody's dream to make America to, to become big in America. That because that seemed to be. You know, because we we came from post-war nothing, everything was levelled, and we, you know, we, we our playgrounds were the bomb sites, and and every everybody's every, everyone in a rock band story is very similar. Keith Richards the same. We all talk about the bomb sites, 
the best playground in the world for kids. Health and safety today wouldn't let you go near them, but nobody got killed. <laughs> not, that you, not that we know of. <laughs> you know, not that we know of. Yeah. I mean, and it, it taught us to be daring. It taught us to, to, to grow up in a, in a way where, you, you know, you, you worked as, 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 as together as people, you know. Um, so from where we were coming, America looked like, it just looked like the Holy Grail. I mean, we've got to, got to make it in America. If you can make it in America, you can have your own house. Although you can only have your own house after you, after you buy your mum her house. Yeah. <laughs> Which is how it was in those days. Uh, and how was New York compared to California? Which was the most important well, the first, place to well, light up? Well, we didn't, didn't really know anything about America, to be honest. The first place we went to, we visited, um, was Detroit. Ann Arbor, Detroit, um, which was Motor City. Um, and and I, I'll never forget it because we were taken to a, a casino uh, and the, the, the cabaret that night was Frank Sinatra Jr. And I suddenly realised that the people we were sitting with, which was MCA Records at the time, I think they were all mob. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was all... <laughs> And of course, <laughs> we're over there, and it and I it was in my dippity do period where I was trying to straighten my curly hair, so I just kind of boof on the haircut uh, and all these mod clothes. We must have looked like something that landed from outer space <laughs> in this casino on this table, but I'll never forget it. And then we played this little tiny high school, uh, Southfields High School, uh, in the gym. So you can imagine how big it was. And it, but something happened. I don't know. The crowd went berserk. And word of mouth in those days was every bit as powerful as, as uh, you know, social media is today. In fact, it, in some ways it's more powerful because word of mouth seems to stick greater yeah, yeah. Than, than anything on the internet. But it comes from a deeper place, doesn't it? It comes from experience. Yeah, they yeah. were there. Yeah. They, they were and, there. Um, so it just went from there. Then we then we went and did this thing called, called the Murray Kay Show in New York, and we witnessed New York for the first time, which I thought was an absolute shithole. <laughs> <laughs> it was so dirty and grimy and everything else, but the people were great. Yeah, the people were great, and and of course we were on this show doing about three or four shows a day, on a bill with the cream, uh, Mitch Ride. Uh, yeah, was it? Uh, you know, was it Mick Friedman and Detroit Wheels, Wilson Pickett? And Murray Decay would have all these other guests coming in and out, different one every day. Simon Garfunkel, Smokey Robinson. So all these people were just, you know, so. But it was, we had to spend like three weeks at this theatre doing, doing three to four shows a day, starting at 10 o'clock in the morning, which is not a great time for musicians, as you know. And we were only allowed to play two songs. So, and all we had was, if we were going to do two songs, we had to do our two hits, which we can't explain. My generation, smash all the gear up, and yeah. <laughs> and then of course, and at ten o'clock in the morning, that's quite a rude awakening from a, for a load of youngsters who've come in from Brooklyn or or the Bronx, you know. Yeah, and quite costly to the band because you're having to smash four lots of gear up every day. Well, it was costly in glue because we would be as fast as we were smashing it. We had four sets of gear that. One, as one got smashed, it, it then got glued, and by the time we got to, the, to smash it again, the glue had set. 
They're like prop but, guitars. But they weren't prop guitars. They were real guitars. But we worked worked out that um, very cleverly that that very rarely did the neck break. As long as the neck didn't break, you could glue the body back. Right. Even with holes in it, it didn't matter. Yeah. As long as the distance between the the bridge and the nut of the guitar is the same, <laughs> you, you can make it work. Yeah, well, well, you, of course, you have right, guitar you, production history. Yeah. Don't you? <laughs> you could, we we could make it work, uh, but it did get expensive, and and, and of course, it, it, uh, we we everybody thought, oh, these these successful rock bands are making millions. <laughs> we were, we were millions in debt. You know, in today's money, we were millions in debt. Honestly? Oh, honestly, Jeez. millions and millions. So, so when did you balance those books then? How did you balance those books? We just worked, 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 worked. And we didn't really make any money till, uh, I think it was after, it was about 1970, 70, 71. Um, I remember we came off tour in 1970. We'd done a huge tour. And we decreased our debt. <laughs> we cut our debt by three quarters, but our debt was still six hundred and fifty-five thousand. Back then, <laughs> honestly. Oh yeah, and you say you go, oh god, it was like being on a chain gang. But then we had, then we had the record royalties from Tommy came in, uh, and then, uh, and then it all started to take off. And then the film obviously brought in brought in some money, and we we started we, everything got paid. And we had some money in the bank at last. I just want to go. I want to go back to sixty-seven and sixty-eight for a second in a, in a moment. But we're onto the dough now, so I love this. So you're six hundred and fifty-five grand in debt, right? But it's okay because it's going the right way, not the wrong way. Were you allowed to spend any money? That had you had you bought? Your well, D- we always had enough money to to to, to eat. But had you bought um, your DB four by this time? Yeah, but it was it was a, a really old second hand. I mean, in those days, they you know you could pick them up for nothing. Right. So, I mean, and I understand why, because it's an absolute piece of crap. <laughs> I, would, if someone, I don't know why would people see the value. I mean, I can see why they see the value in them, because it's, a, you know, you got, there's no capital gains when you sell them. But well, they're um, beautiful, though. As well. I mean, really? <laughs> no, they look beautiful, but they do drive like a tractor. And of course, oh, David Brown. It's a, it's a, the worst truck, worst truck I've ever driven. Yeah, no, they don't And, go and they're not even really that fast. And the engine is nothing but trouble. Constant trouble. Yeah. That twin overhead cam. But James Bond had a DB5. Yeah, but he was an idiot. Yeah, well, <laughs> doesn't matter. But so, so because John and Keith went for Bentleys, didn't they? And then uh, Pete went for like a, a Lincoln or something. Was that? Were you still in debt when people you were buying these? Oh yeah, we're on paper we were way in debt. Yeah, right. But you, yeah, but we still just had it. But we, you know, <laughs> we, we we had enough money to they the management used to feed us enough money to get by pocket money. Yeah, yeah. Let them think they're rock stars. Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay, so so Jimi Hendrix, right? Two stories about Jimi Hendrix. Um, one is backstage at Monterey. Is that true? Is 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 it true that Pete and he tossed the coin because yep. of the, that's, right. it, that's exactly true. Sorry, can you just tell that story? Cause I know you've told it before, but it's a great well, story. I mean, J- Jimmy was absolutely amazing. Uh, performer, but what people don't realise is a lot of Jimmy's um, showmanship, not just when he stood at the mic, because that was Jimmy being as good as he is, but when he started doing digging his guitar into the amps and putting his guitar and the feedback and all that, 
most of that he copied from Townsend. Townsend was doing that in 19, late 1963. So did Hendrix see him doing that in London? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he saw it somewhere, somewhere he saw it anyway right. uh, and was copying it. Um, uh, so by the time we got to, uh, to Monterey in 67, obviously Jimmy, we'd done a few shows with him before. Pete was kind of thinking, well, that's my whole show is that. You know, it's always, and it's always a great finale. You know, we didn't really quite have confidence in the music that we had at those times. We had, we, we were a pop band with these weird singles, this, this kind of very obscure music, really, wasn't it? With singles like I'm a Boy and Happy Jack and, 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 and a mini opera. I mean, how pretentious was that? A mini opera called A Quick One While He's Away. <laughs> It was insane what the stuff we were playing. So we thought, well, we're going to get slaughtered if 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 he goes on before us and does his whole show because that's our show done. You know, where's going to be the surprise that we can give an audience that will at least make them go, ah, you've got to see the who. Uh, so Pete and Jimmy flipped a coin and Pete won and we chose to go on first. But then, of course, Jimmy came on and blew us all away anyway because if you ever saw Jimmy on the stage, I mean, and unfortunately you never will, but he was... It, to see Jimmy play the guitar and, and move and perform like he did, there's been no-one come near since or before. He was extraordinary. Tell he us really more, was. Just because it's fascinating. Just tell us more about this. So, did he have that effect on all the musicians? Was it like, was it a, a, another worldly presence on stage? What was he like backstage? Was he like that all the time? Like, watching him on stage was like watching a mythical animal, mythical beast. It was like the guitar was part, completely part of him, um, and just his musicianship. And to their credit, the band, you know, Mitch Mitchell and Noel Redding. That you know, I know they they had their kind of personal difficulties. Jimmy got bored with them, not so much Mitch, more with Noel. But to their credit, uh, they had the ability to st stay with him, because Jimmy could be halfway through a song and just flip into another song completely off the wall, um, and would often do that. But they would stay with him note for note, and it, and they were good. They were good. You, you, I don't think they really got the credit they deserve. Right. But the respect from you guys, of course. Well, yeah, I, I, they were they were amazing. I mean, when I, when, I, when we first saw Jimi Hendrix at, uh, at Blaze's, um, when he did his showcase, we all walked out of there. We, <laughs> oh, dear. Really? <laughs> what was it like that night? Come on, tell me. It was just incredible. I mean, it was just like, wow. Were you working that night or were you just... No, it was just a night and it was late. It was like kind of midnight or 11 o'clock, midnight. Um, we, we we might have been in the studio. Um, I can't remember. Well, what. you also said, let's go for a beer, let's watch... No, we, we used to go to clubs every night. Right. So there was Blazes, there was Bag of Nails, there was uh, the Speakeasy, of course. But this was... Uh, I seem to remember it was Blazes that we saw his first showcase gig. And... Um, Everybody was there. Um, Brian Jones, Eric Clapton, you know, we 
page, and they all walked out to. I was going to say yeah. Better go, better go and practice. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you, if you were carrying, what? How did bloody Clapton and and Jimmy Page feel about it? Well, you better ask them. I don't know. I mean, but they, it was it was just watching a virtuoso in in, in that you something you'd never seen before. You yeah. could do things on a guitar that you'd never seen before. He could make it. He could make it talk to you. What about other memorable bands? You know that you used to go and watch around. Well, there? in those days, yeah. I used to like quite a lot of a lot of people. I used to like the Alan Bounds set. They were good bands, good soul band. Um, Gino Washington. I used to <laughs> so much fun. You know. Uh, and swing it, and it was the swinging sixties. Yeah. Honestly, if the genie came out of the bottle now and said, Listen, "Okay, what's was... the wish?" It's, I want to go back there now for half an hour. I want to smell oh, it. No. I want to. I want to see it. I just want to feel it. It was so funny because oh. we didn't. It was all we're making this business up as we went along. You know, like Gino Washington, his 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 um his band was really quite big, as you know. It must have been at seven people. And they all, in those days, we used to wear these kind of Cuban heel boots that came from Anello and David. And they'd, their boots had to be gold, so they used to spray them with gold paint every night. And of course, then all the boots used to get bunged in the tea chest. <laughs> and if they were ever late for a gig, you can often, because they used to do all these sort of stage movements, you know, yeah, like yeah, shadows yeah. movements. You can often see, see kind of some quite strange movements going on. That's because they've got odd boots. <laughs> the size 10 foot is in a size 7. Size 7 is in a size 10. <laughs> that used to go on quite regularly in the Gino Washington band, the gold boots. I mean, this is another true story. The Mersey Beats, who were good friends of ours and they were on our record label. And, of course, they were Scousers. Wonderful, 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 the Merseys. Uh, 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 they used to kind of hang around around Wardour, Wardour Street in the ship uh, and uh, the marquee. But after a while, we, we'd only ever see two of them at a time. And this became quite a bit of a puzzle. So, one, <laughs> so we were in the ship one night and we said, well, where's the other two tonight then? Well, so, no, we well... <laughs> No, no, and no, no one. They would never say why they were, the other two weren't there. But the next <laughs> night would be the other two, and the other two won't be there. And the truth was, we found out that they only had two pairs of boots. <laughs> this is true. This is. They're so proud they couldn't go out without their, without their, you know, the Beetle boots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they used to share the boots. So. So two would go out one night and then two would come out the next night. Because they, this is absolutely true. One night on, one night off. <laughs> Bloody hell. The Mersey Boots. Forget the Mersey Beats. <laughs> the Mersey Boots. Fucking hell. Oh, my God. Um, can we talk... Let's talk about another education for me. Right, so Purple Hearts, Black Bombers, right? The pharmaceuticals of the yeah. time. Which you never partook in. I well, I did. I took I took Purple Hearts for a, a couple of nights. We we were doing we were doing um, two shows a night. Right. We used to do like Margate, and then we drive into London, and then we drive all the way up the south, round the South Circular, north to Tottenham, and do the the, the, the Club Norreek or something. And what were they? What what they was were, the... they were like old cinemas of no, the, the, the clubs. bloody Purple. Oh, 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 oh amphetamine. Right, uh, and so you know, at four o'clock in the morning, when you you just done a gig, you, you finished at eleven, you've driven all the way from 
from Margate to Tottenham and you, then you're due on stage at four o'clock in the morning, someone says, yeah, take this, it'll help you. And yeah. of course, the next thing you know, you're chewing your lip. <laughs> you said that. I mean, you said that in your book, didn't you? You said, oh, yeah. well, I just used to end up chewing my lip for a couple of hours and then you, you could swallow. I used, to, I used to dry my throat up so much I couldn't, I couldn't sing. So I thought, well, they're, they're not going to work for me. And I, I managed to, to, to miss out on that. I was very lucky. But the other guys were on it uh, quite big time. They got on it quite badly. And what that did was made them play faster because it was speed, of course. Uh, so all the temp... And, and the weird thing is sometimes when you're playing too fast, it can sometimes feel great when you're doing it. But when you actually listen back... <laughs> No, 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 it's true. It, it, you can sometimes feel great when you're doing it, yeah, but no, when you listen back to it, it's 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 off the ground. It's oh not God. it's not rooted, and it's not good at all. No, because you probably think you're king of the world at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, and it can go the other way, can't it? Because in the seventies, that's why you had these concert albums that went on for like three days. Well, I don't know about that. It was, it was a reverse. <laughs> three days. No, but you know, it's like seventeen-minute tracks and all that. It's like, yeah, Jesus, yeah. What's going on here? Yeah, that's so, what it was often quite like that in the studio. That's what I mean. So it was like it was like the re reverse effect, but it was all sort of. But, oh, see, that's what was that was so, what was so wonderful about those days, and, and it's very very simple. The artists, the creators, were in charge of the creation. Now it's the businessman. It's the business. You know, it's the business now. Yeah. It's totally different. But you had to go up pot as well, didn't you? you had to... I, 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 I was given my first joint by one of the four tops. <laughs> in, in, yeah. Hang, it, hang on. How did that happen? And that is true. We were doing "Thank You Lucky Stars" and it was in Birmingham. And Levi Stubbs came up to me and he, you know, he go, man. He said, "You're you're, you're a cool band, man." <laughs> we were doing my generation, I think, at the time. And he, he gave me this spliff. And yeah, I quite like that. I thought, this is all right. Yeah. Um, I used to smoke in those days anyway. I was smoking tobacco. And uh, so that was my first kind of venture into pot. And it was very good pot. Um, I can't remember if the show was any good, but I had a good time. Um, and then in 1967, that was in 65, didn't... Pot was hard to get in England in those days. It wasn't easy to get. Um, more, you would get a bit of hash every now and again, but I didn't used to like that. It was too sleepy. I don't do well on sleepy stuff. Um, but then we went to we went to San Francisco in 1967. We played just before the Monterey Pop Festival, and I became very good friends with a guy called Owsley, uh, the Bear. As, 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 uh, Is that the Grateful Dead Bear? Yeah, yeah. Because that emblem is the bear, isn't it? Yeah, well, the bear, the bear was Owsley. Um, yeah, um, he he was he Stanley Owsley. He was he he was the guy who was making all the purple haze, and he basically a chemist. He was employed by I think he was employed by the American government. I'm not hundred percent sure on that, but but that was the legend of Owsley. Yeah, and I he just latched on to me, and we became really good friends, and he and. Uh, he immediately said to me on the first night we were at the Fillmore West when we first got to 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 San Francisco. This is flowers in your hair time, you know, peace and love. And he said, "I've been watching you, Roger." He said, "Whatever you do," he said, "don't take any of these chemicals." He said, "They won't. They'll they'll kill you. Don't you? You're not the type." He said, "You've got too much energy, and you, you don't need that." So he said, "He said, what have you ever done anything?" I said, "Well, I've." 
I, I, I tried the purple hearts. I said, I didn't like those. He said, well, you know, he said, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Leave those alone. He said, and I said, and I, and I, and I do like a bit of pot. <laughs> so he said, yeah, he said, stick with that. He said, and you'll be all right. <laughs> it's true. And then he turned up at, at Monterey and he slips in my hand. He gave me a, a Campbellwell carrot, all wrapped in the stars and stripes. It was like a giant Cuban cigar. He said, I got your present. <laughs> and uh, needless to say, uh, uh, after the show at Monterey, um, all, all the other guys were tripping. Uh, they'd all taken acid. And um, I just had a few toots on this joint and had a really wonderful night with, with a very good friend of mine. And uh, woke up the next morning, clear-headed as anything, um, to, to three guys who had been up all night were still flying didn't know where they were thought i was an angel because <laughs> yeah and you are roger <laughs> no but no but a real angel <laughs> no, no, not, not that kind of angel no they thought i had something that come down from space because i was wearing these caftans with all these colors and you know glittery beads and stuff and all this stuff uh, and I had, to, I had to shepherd them all the way home to Britain, which was not an easy task. I know. Uh, it's funny now, but it wasn't funny then at all. No, I mean, we, we, we took it in our stride, but it, I think about it, it was hysterical. Oh, dear. Oh. Herding cats. <laughs> See, now, it's true. Nowadays, if, you know, I was very fortunate enough to be invited you by you to go to, to a gig with you on your plane, which was like, one, I still don't actually believe that night happened. So thank you very much for that. That was an incredible night. But we we landed in Lake Tahoe. And the one... Can we, can we rephrase the your plane? I haven't got a plane. Well, you know what I mean. What, what the rental plane. Nobody's going to mind that. Nobody's going to mind that for a second. <laughs> well, but, it makes me... You know, if only I had a plane... No, uh, if I had a plane... I'd be in Antigua. I'd fly in the morning. Um I'll be with you, by the way. But then, so we, really? so we land in Lake Tahoe, and then we, you do the sound check for the gig. It's an open air gig, twelve thousand people. It's absolutely, it's an idyllic night. It couldn't be a better night for for an open air who gig in North America, in Nevada. And um, and then the the set. Well, the first thing I remember is the sound check, which was no. The first thing I remember was the fact that that you and Pete didn't talk to each other on the plane, right? But let's just part that for a minute. And I thought. Aye, aye, right? But I've learned a lot more about that since because I'm stupid, right? The second thing was you were you were so protective of me and you were so like, make sure he's all right. This was unbelievable. Thank you. Third thing was the sound check, which was so comprehensive. And I thought, you know, you've been in this for years, but it was still a big old sound check, proper sound check. The fourth thing was the smell of marijuana from the fucking audience. <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ, because that just didn't even occur to me. This is like a couple of years ago, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And it was like, but now, you, is it true you have to ask them, if, it, if well, the wind's yeah, blowing I, the wrong I, way, do you have I, to? No, that's one of the downsides. I, I got meningitis like five years ago, and uh, since then I've got this terrible allergy to the smell of pot. I mean, of all the afflictions... <laughs> For the who frontman to get? I, I, I don't know. I, I think I'm. A, no, I wouldn't have preferred the meningitis. No, but yeah, I know. But it, it's a nightmare because it closes my my throat. Just closes up with the smell. But now I've I've kind of found a little way around it because, as you know, um, pot is completely legal in California, so everybody smokes it. Yeah. You're not going to stop them. And I don't want to spoil everybody's fun, or anybody's fun. I mean, I prefer they ate it because it does the same thing. It just takes a little bit longer to work, but. Um, 
But I found that, that if I can, I take a couple of uh, antihistamines before I go on, I can get through it all right. Right. Yeah. And is it a common thing at a who gig? That, that oh well, that's part of every gig. Yeah. No, yeah, because because and it was the it was the veil of smoke. I thought they haven't turned the dry ice on yet. And it was there. It was hanging. People having the time of their lives. Oh, it's just you know, I, I've never un- quite understood. It's obviously it's too political to get into, but I've never understood why why it's criminalised the way it is. It's crazy. It's crazy. You know, you criminalise booze way, but if it was down to health. You criminalise booze way before pop. Yeah, and side effects and social... It's just cr- yeah, every, all, all, all the way down the line. It's yeah, just, yeah. It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, well, I think, I think um, well, we shouldn't get... Nixon may have had something to do with it and Tim Billeary and Ramdas and all that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That, was a, that was an interesting few years, wasn't it, to say the least. Um, so, obviously, you were flying then, as good as it gets, Um Live at Leeds, that was unbelievable. That was a seminal point for you, wasn't it? Yeah, um, it was a gig. Oh, come on. Everybody says it's the best live gig ever to be laid down. Well, no, that's just a, that's a public opinion. It doesn't mean much, does it? I mean, yeah. it, means, it means a lot. It, it means a lot when you... It, but it, it doesn't really mean that that's a fact. No. Yeah. No, it doesn't mean it's a fact, but, I mean, if you don't mind... Just for us, sp- it was just another gig. The gig the night afterwards at Hull was a better gig. Right. So, so why did why is this legend? Um, sort well, of... I think it's because at the time it was a it was a kind of it was a kind of groundbreaking record because it was raw, it was gutsy, it was ballsy, um, it just seemed to hit a nerve, and we were we were at a, a time when we were really starting to gel as musicians, all the egos were starting to disappear, and we were we were enjoying being yeah, a band yeah. rather than enjoying the fight. <laughs> yeah, but that I mean, but the fight was the drama, and the drama was the magnet, and the magnet was the compulsion, and it was the, the electricity. It was it was the fact that it's often been said, Keith, yeah. me and just played a drum solo all the way through every single song. Uh, well, I, I've, I've seen things said about Keith and John since their death. Yep. Um, and, and, and I've got to say, some of them quite disparaging, and some some come from quite close to the band. Uh, mentioning no names, but but I've often thought that without, I think my honest opinion of the Who, I think um, Pete Townsend would, would always have been an important writer. But I think without that dynamic, and without the chemistry and the and the the whole thing that the the band brought to his music, I think he would have remained quite an obscure writer. It was the Who that made his music. What it has become today, I think without without the genius of Keith John, I'm not calling myself a genius by any means, but without the chemistry and the dynamic we we created, I think he would have remained an important but quite relatively obscure writer, because it's 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 very different music. Is it true that Keith one got, once got fed up to the extent he tried to get he applied for a job in the Beatles? Oh, I think oh, you'd have applied for a job anywhere to, rather than be in the Who. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, he had to put up with Pete and me. <laughs> no, he he, 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 he he would have had a job. No, he liked the, he he really liked the fact that Ringo was always very high up on a very high plinth. Right. So you could see him. He used to be get be really peed off that he was on a much lower plinth with the Who, and I used to stand in front of him. Not that I'm tall. 
And you could obviously always see Keith, but Keith used to always feel that the drummer should be at the front of the stage and the singer should be behind him. <laughs> How did you feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I, we, I don't know. It just wouldn't have worked dynamically. It wouldn't have worked. It would have been an absolute mess because the obviously singers might would have, it would have been impossible to gel it together. But it, it, it's not, those things never used to bother me at all. But that's how Keith was. No, no. And you told me before about, you know, he had a poster on his wall in his bedroom about California. He had a blonde lady on it. He had a surfboard. And um, he, he, he was probably next to a picture of Steve McQueen. And basically he went to, they were his three wishes from the genie's Bottle. Well, I mean, yeah, he, he had those pictures on his wall that he cut out from from Jackie magazine or whatever, you know. The, as we all did, as you do when you're young, you just have these. You see a picture that you like, and you'll stick it up. And he he was California dreaming in rainy Wembley. Yeah, and all, all when he finally got the chance to, to go and surf, he thought all you had to do is buy a surfboard, and you could immediately surf. That's what he thought. Yes, that was in, in Hawaii, which is not particularly an easy place to learn to, <laughs> to surf. To learn? No, <laughs> no. And he came back, and he nearly—I'm just so glad he came back. Really, really was glad he just came back. I didn't—I thought it might be the last we could see of him. But he—he he spent like twenty minutes drowning, trying to or trying not to, <laughs> and came back. God. Said, "Well, that's that done." Okay, just, just just if you don't mind. But he was fearless. I've never known anyone in my life as fearless as Keith. I, we came, we played Asbury Park, you know, legendary Bruce Springsteen yeah. town. And there's a pier at Asbury, or was it Atlantic City? No, Asbury Park, there's a pier goes into the ocean. And we, it was a really stormy kind of uh, late September night, I think it was, and we played a pier. And at the end of the show... Keith runs out from finishing the show because we used to sweat an awful lot, dives off into the, into the Atlantic, this raging storm. I never thought we'd see him again after that, but there he was on the beach. Even the sea didn't want him. Do you ever think about him now when you're quite... Oh, all the time, yeah, but you can't. I'm trying, still trying to do my film on him uh, and the difficulty I'm having, and it is a difficulty, is that desperately trying to stop it being a Who film. I do not want to make a Who film. I want to make a Keith Moon film. A drama or a ducko? I want it to be a drama. I don't I, I don't want to I don't want it to be a biopic. Right. You know, I don't I want it to be more than that because he was more than that. And how he far did... how far are you down the line with that? Uh, it's small steps, small steps. We we kind of know where we're going and we've got it's it's now getting the vision added to it that stops it being a biopic and squeezing as much of the who out of it. Obviously, the, 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 the music will be, some of the music will be there, but that's not the important thing to me. What's important to me and why I've always wanted to make this film is to understand why Keith was like he was. I think he was personally, personally, I think he was autistic, slightly autistic, or maybe even Asperger's. Um, I also, I also have theories about his his life and the trajectory it took, especially towards the end. Uh, and I'd like to air them. And I just because I had a very interesting relationship with him, insofar as at the beginning, 
we were we were kind of opposite ends of the of, of the poles. You know, he he was one side of the room, I was the other. At the end, we would we I was the only one, and my wife was the only one picking up the phone to him at four in the morning, with him crying on the phone. You know, we became very close. So that's a kind of interesting story in itself. You know. Um, but I, I think biopics um, generally, if they're not done well, and the only, the last good one I saw was the one on the Beach Boys where they actually had two different people playing Brian Wilson. Right. And I thought that was a good good attempt at showing a, at least it was about Brian Wilson and not about the Beach Boys. I didn't, I've not seen that. You know, that's a good film. What's I recommend called? you watch it. And it's, uh, John Cusack plays one of the characters and I can't remember who the other guy was, one of, one of the Brian Wilsons. And then the younger Brian Wilson is some t totally different actor. Oh, you'll have to look it up. I can't remember what's right. I'm an I'm old. I can't remember things like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the life in your years, not the years in your life. And you're still, you've had more than your fair share, mate. You know that better than anybody else. So, so Pete Townsend says, it's not that Roger and I um, don't get on. It's just that we've had a, trouble communicating. <laughs> I thought it was such an interesting way of putting it. He said that to... In an interview that I listened to yesterday, and I thought, okay. And then when I was on the plane with you two, you didn't speak, and I thought you'd had a Barney, but maybe he's right. Maybe that's that's just the way you you've been the whole time. Well, yeah, I suppose it is. Um, I don't. I, I do. We need to talk a lot. I don't know. No, it doesn't. It's not really important. I mean, the most important thing is that if you write something that I like, and I and I think that's a really good song is that I can get into where his head is when he's writing it what, and I can look at the words he's written and I can I can empathise with that and I can transmit to an audience that empathy. That's what it's all about, you know, for me. That, and, and that's all that matters. I don't care about the rest of it. Um, do I care about him? Of course I do. Of course I do. He's a mate, you know, and I really do care about him. The last time you played live, was that at Kingston? Yeah. Tell us about that. We just, uh, it was the beginning of the year, it was in March. No, was it? No, February. Because um, we had an album out last year, which did, did okay, not as good as we would have liked to have done. Got great reviews. You know, I think it was the best album we've done possibly since uh, Who Are You in the 70s. Um, got some great tracks on it. Uh, and then to, to help the sales of that album, because it's very hard now to actually sell physical product, we did a couple of acoustic shows at a little club in Kingston, and uh, and the fans. Yet, yet, but if you bought a record, and then paid an extra ten quid or something, very cheap, um, you get to come and see this live acoustic show in this club. It was a thousand people, and we did two nights. We had great fun, um, more of a comedy act than a, than a musical night, <laughs> but that, but. The, the who are good at that shit, you know. We've had to be. We've been winging it for all these years. But it's funny because it, it's ironic that, that 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 feels like a sort of left turn or a right turn, whichever. It, it was. It was. It was maybe at the beginning of a new chapter, and then it was closed down because of what's gone on. Yeah, but equally, it might be the way back because if they don't let big concerts go on, I can see them maybe opening the the, the, the smaller clubs where you you are allowed. Five or six hundred thousand people in, into into a theatre or something. Pete and I would, I would definitely do it. I think Pete would might be interested. 
I'd like to do it. I don't want to do it. I don't need to do it financially. I would like to do it to keep our crews working. I'm really concerned about the state of our business. That they, all all our crews, the, the sound people, the lighting people, the road, the, the, you know, the techs, they're all self-employed people. They're getting no help at all at the moment. I'll do the next tour just to, to, to make sure we can pay them this year's money that they've lost. You know, that's how I feel about it. I think we've got we've got a there is a movement at the moment. One of our our conductor actually of our orchestra has got a thing called uh, Fuster Cluck, which is <laughs> yes, you can yeah yeah. Um, Such a muso joke. <laughs> yes, it's 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 Fuster Cluck, and if you'd like to donate, it could be because there are there are. There's, you know, a million people that are self-employed who are getting no help at all from the government whatsoever. Um, so we're, 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 they're taking donations. So, again, please donate. But if we, when we do go back, I'm quite prepared to do, to certainly, you know, try and make up the crew's money for this year that they've lost. Um, I'll probably regret saying this later. I'm going to go, no, what I want to take, pay them for. We can no, they're going to earn more than me. <laughs> no, but I mean, that's how I feel. I, I really feel for them. I mean, it, I, it's just oh, that awful feeling of being so helpless, not being able to make any plans and seeing them, you know, they're getting no help from government whatsoever. So it's, but it's again, it's ironic because, you know, you could, there are tracks from the gig, aren't there, on the deluxe version of the yeah. album that's been re-released. Can't wait to hear them. I tried to hear them today, couldn't get them. But Holy shit. <laughs> I bet they're not. I bet no, they're awesome. No, it's just acoustic. It's no, just I bet. Got, come on. They're kind of funny, you know. You might. You, well, I can't wait. To, I can't wait to hear them. I can't wait to hear them. But it's, you know, and it's, it just seems like it had that more, much more of a relaxed atmosphere. It's jokey, you know. I mean, for the fans, it's gold, man. Yeah. I mean, that, that side of it is great. It's the banter. Yeah. Fans love banter. And, you know, Pete and I can get quite lippy with each other. I was going to say. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's all... It's all it, I've, I always say that, you know, it's, it's rock wrestling. <laughs> That's what it is. Nothing more, nothing less. You know, it doesn't matter what people write in their headline, you know, Dolce's round with Townsend, fight, who are fighting again. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wrestling. You know, it's, it keeps people interested. But, of course, they weren't supposed to be your only gigs this year because there were some stadium gigs. And you, you're still going ahead with these postponed gigs? In they're early only, they're only postponed. We've got them pencilled in for March. They are. We are going to wait as late as possible before we have to say they're not going to let us do them. We'll probably be around about the end of November. But then we, we'll have to obviously reschedule for what will then be probably October. Yeah. But we're not going to give them up. The Albert Hall is a difficult one because we, the Teenage Cancer Trust, had to book the Albert Hall for twelve years in advance to to get that that, that week of a year, um, and our our twelve year contract is up next year. So where we are now, we don't know. Yeah. And of course, the Albert Hall itself is a charity. It's in terrible trouble, isn't it? It's terrible trouble. Nightmare time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a really, really, really tricky time for our business. But we'll bounce back because there's one thing that I think the public need probably more than ever at the moment is cheering up. Yeah, no. And there's nothing like a bit of live music. To... Or the arts or theatre or whatever yeah. it may be or the movies. Or... That's right, exactly right. You know. Well, movies are getting geared up again. I mean, I've got friends of mine now working on Jurassic Park 2 and, and, and there's a few other movies that are going on. So they're doing it, having to be tested three times a week. 
Yeah. Of, of, but with a test that's only 80% true, it's a nonsense, isn't it? It's a bit nonsense. Well, let's get, if it keeps the business going. If it keeps it all heck? going, so what? It's funny because you, you said, you know, in 63, 63 came along and it exploded and it was needed because post-World War II, uh, you, you, the great phrase you used, you know, people have been dancing in the fountains, you know, we won the war, we won the war, and that was beginning to fade away, that sort of, um, that, that echo, and the 60s had to happen. You know, I wasn't there. Well, I was sort of, as in my mum's tummy. Um, as you were in your mum's tummy for the Blitz, when <laughs> you down the air raid shelter in your mum's tummy. And I can't help thinking that we might need that again. Maybe, ironically, around, you know, in a couple of years' time, 2023, 60 years after the 60s kicked in, you know, do you, do you get... The there is, I know what you're saying, and there is, there is, there is a truism in it that, that, that you know, we, we, we were on the floor, and out of that, out of that, Terrible, terrible time comes some of the most creative work of that whole century. And it, could it have come without being that far down yeah. in the gallery? No, probably not. You know. If you had to bet, would you say that the Who will play a stadium again? Oh, we don't play stadiums as such. We'll, we will play gigs again, yes. Yeah, if 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 Pete will accompany me or yeah join me, then we will definitely do something again. Good, because again, the, the, I, I I'm, I'm, I'm our fans. There's only been I don't know less than a hundred ticket requests for the money back refunds, and that's probably because they needed because they want to hold they want to hold the tickets. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So they're loyal to us. We'll be there as soon as we're allowed to be there. We'll be there as soon as we can make it happen. We will. Can't speak for Pete, but I'm sure he's the same. Because they reckon the expectation, you know, and, and whenever we're allowed to do all that again, because we, we've we never not had it. We've never been deprived of it. You know, talking to Rod Stewart, he was talking about his sister, um, who's who's 90-odd, and she was in the war. And he says, you know, what's this like compared to then? And she said, this is worse in a way, because, you know, okay, when we went down to the air raid shelter, you know, one night, the pubs were open the next day. We parted like there was no tomorrow. But right now, there's everything's on hold, and this has never happened before. That's the thing. You can't make any plans, and that is the thing that's creating the mental damage. And there is there's an awful lot of mental health issues being going down now. You can feel it in people. Um, and we, we we're a communal animal. We can't be locked away. We need we need to we need to address things differently. I don't, I don't know where it's going from here, but it needs to change, that's for sure. And maybe we've got to learn to live with it. Maybe we... Why we're also living denial of, of, of our mortality. and we, Maybe this is a, a reckoning. We've got to wake up to the fact, well, maybe we're all going to get it and some of us will die. Simple as that. Yeah. Before we finish, thank you for your time, Roger. It's been amazing. Um, it has been said that some of your best shows... In the Who, post the sixties and early seventies, um, post Keith, um, were in the early noughties when you were in your fifties. Now I'm in my fifties now, right? <laughs> and you were flying then, and you're flying now. Um, what's it like? <laughs> I don't know. I, you can't. See, I can't see it from the outside. I just do what I do. You know. Uh, I tell you what. You must come and see the show with the orchestra because you, you, I know you're a true music lover. 
you will absolutely this is not the average rock band with the average orchestra where most of what the orchestra is playing could be played on a Kurzweil keyboard. These orchestrations are mega. <laughs> that is like, and the Who is full blown Who with that on top. It's the most. It's one of the best stage things we've ever done. It musically, it's like another huge step up a ladder. You know, it, yeah, yeah. you must come. You be my guest because it is terrific. I just like to rephrase that. What I was trying to, I couldn't think of the word because I'm, I'm going senile. Uh, uh, when I was talking about the, uh, after the war, the fact that we were flat on the floor, we had nothing. We were barely getting the windows and the roofs back on our houses. Um, plenty of work for 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 everybody. You walk out of one job into another, sh- sure, but it's amazing that. We had very little money, but we were very happy. So money's got nothing to do with happiness. And it's amazing that out of that adversity comes the most, one of probably the most creative periods of the 20th century. And maybe that's what will happen after this. Hopefully this never happens again. But it will. That's nature. That's how we are. All the time we're, we're evolving, changing species, it will something will bite, turn up and bite us in the bum. And often, you know, often it's the t- back to the teenagers. That's where we started. Um, that it's often the teenagers that lead the charge. You know, there'll be a lot of people who have been, you know, back to basics, you know, stuck in the bedroom. Kids, ha- one, one thing that kids have loads of, you know, which becomes priceless as you get older is time. Um, so loads of kids will listen to this now because you're Roger Daltrey from Nahoo. And if they are, you know, learning their first three chords on the guitar or whatever they're doing. Can you just give them a little word, if you don't mind? What, E, A and B minor? Yeah, well... B, B, B7. It's C, G and D, isn't it? I mean, they're they're oh, the ones, aren't they? Oh, is it? Oh, is it one-finger G, F and yeah. C? <laughs> I won't give them the one-finger C, no. But tell them to, to keep on keeping on, that's the secret. Yeah, keep... I mean, I really feel for this younger age group because, especially because the internet now and social media is so hard to fathom. It is incredibly difficult not to be hoodwinked by the truth uh, or even finding the truth. You know, my in my opinion, the more you turn it off, the better off you'll be. The more you put the iPhone down, and start looking up away from it and look out at what's out there and see how wonderful life really is. You don't see it down the line, but if you put your head up and put the phone in your pocket, you'll you'll start living a lot more. Yeah. Turn your screens off, turn yourself on. I reckon, yeah. That's my opinion. I don't, I, 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 I don't, I think social media, sure it's brought people together, especially in this time because it's, it's been necessary, but in a lot, a lot of ways, uh, it's an incredibly divisive tool. And we haven't even mentioned um, Heather, the original foxy lady. <laughs> yes, yes. Yes, she is. Yeah. Well, Heather knew Jimmy way before she knew me. This is Jimmy Hendrix. Just, sorry, we've got to finish on this. Let's finish on this story. Come on. She, yeah, she was foxy lady. He, the, but this no, is Roger's wife, by the way. No, but he he actually said that. Jimmy said it in a, in a magazine one once because he was asked who was foxy lady. He said, well... He said it's about loads of women. He said, but but he said if it's about anyone, it's about Roger Daltrey's wife, 
Heather. So that was out of Jimmy's mouth. But Heather knew Jimmy when he was in, uh, what was his name? Curtis Rush and the Squires. And then he was with Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. And then, of course, they knew him just as his session guitarist. He was just standing up there doing shadows movements in the back, you know. Because uh, Heather's, Heather's best mate was, was a girl called Devon Wilson, who was one of Jimmy's girlfriends. Jimmy had lots of girlfriends, but Devon was Jimmy's girlfriend, not Heather. Uh, Heather was a, on stage in New York. She was in, in shows. She, she was a you know, showgirl. And um, but Devon used to take her to Harlem. So Heather's seen, you, you name it, of that, those original people, She's seen them all in the Apollo in Harlem, you know, the only white girl in the audience. <laughs> uh, so Heather's got the best book in the world, you know, if she can ever <laughs> drag it out. Anyway, I wish she would. I really, she's got stories about everyone you can't believe. And she's so eloquent the way she tells them. So her humour is so good and the stories are so good. It would make one of the best books on the 60s, 70s period you could ever read. She says also another book, she calls it Survived by the Wife. Yeah, the wife of the lead singer of the Who. <laughs> Boom. But I bet she doesn't regret a single day. Uh, no, I, 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 we, rub, we rub along relatively well. You know, we've been together now. It's 54 years. Congratulations. Yeah, it's just, uh, uh, we've got a golden one coming up next year. <laughs> That's cool. I might buy her a ring. <laughs> you got to buy something. <laughs> Apparently your mortgage free. Uh, Roger, thanks a lot. All right, mate. Awesome. Good to see you. Oh, awesome. Yeah. As always, a real privilege. Thank you. Roger Daltrey, um, what a chat. How lucky am I to be invited to his house and have that conversation with him? But you got to listen in, so that's all right, too. This has been How to Wow. And today's show has been brought to you by Athletic Greens. Go to athleticgreens.com slash howtowow now. And if you do input the How to Wow bit of that URL, you'll get a free year's supply of vitamin D and five travel-free sachets today. That's their special offer to you via us. Athleticgreens.com slash howtowow. Have a great one. See you next time. Ta-da.